Good morning, everybody. I just want to say it's way better to sit in the front of this room if you've never done that before. It just sounds so good. Thank you, Praise Team, for uh, leading us in worship today. Has everyone recovered from their turkey coma yet? I certainly had one. <laughs> I tend to eat a lot of food whenever it comes time to eat a lot of food. And uh, I, was, I was excited. Are, are you thankful for anything today? Did you have a chance to say that to somebody? I know that when we were gathered around our table uh, up in Nashville where my, my aunt and uncle live, uh, my aunt said, I would love for everyone to take a moment to go around the table and share something that you're thankful with. And so we all got to do that, and it was a wonderful thing. And perhaps you have a tradition like that in your home. Uh, I know that right now I'm super thankful that a man named Steve Jobs created something called the iPhone that has allowed me to get this brand new one a couple of days ago. I'm super pumped about that. Uh, but I'm, I'm grateful for lots of other things that I know a lot of y'all could... Uh, would agree with family and friends and a wonderful experience to get to worship God like this today. Uh, Kind of a neat thing, my parents are actually here today, uh, which is rare because uh, they are both very much involved in ministry. My dad is a preacher right now, so anytime in, in the past that I have been able to preach, normally, because it's a holiday, normally my brother, who's a minister, is also preaching and my dad is preaching. So we've never once been in the same place all at the same time other than, I guess, to listen to him. So for my parents to get to hear me in person is kind of a cool deal. I'm a, I'm a big boy, right? So it's, it's kind of fun. But I'm grateful to have them there as, as well as my parents-in-law who, who have now moved here. I wanted to start off by telling about a podcast that I recently listened to. Uh, I'm really into podcasts right now. It's kind of nerdy, but probably a lot of you guys are in the same deal. And I found this podcast by Malcolm Gladwell. He's a famous author. His podcast is called Revisionist History. And there's one episode in particular that I heard a few weeks ago, and the title of it was The Big Man Can't Shoot. And if you've heard this podcast, you know it's pretty interesting. He tells the story of a very, very famous basketball player who was dominant at scoring during his era in the game. This guy was so good at scoring that I had to look up some stats on this just to kind of understand just how good he was. And I looked up top, basically the the highest scoring single games in the history of the NBA. And out of all of the players that have scored 60 points or more in a single game, it's happened 69 different times. So just under 70 One person has scored 60 or more points in a basketball game. That's a lot of shots. But out of those 69 occurrences, 32 of them were from the same guy. Like nobody else even comes close to the scoring ability of this guy, at least not in his era. 32 times he scored more than 60 points in a game. The top 10 are six of him. And the number one slot is when he scored 100 points in a basketball game. And many of you know who I'm talking about. It's this guy right here, Wilt Chamberlain. There's really never been anybody that has been like him. There are other people that you could argue have been better overall at the game, but but nobody has been like him. Now, the percentage that you see there is his one black mark on his record because he was really bad, like really bad, at shooting free throws. 51.1% is his career free throw average. And that's really bad. I looked at some other stats. So of, of people that have played, that have gone to the line 
more than 100 times, which basically means they're like a normal basketball player that has a normal career. So guys that have, pl- that have gone to the free throw line more than 100 times, he is the sixth worst of all time. But he's the best scorer, basically, of all time, but he couldn't shoot free throws to save his life. He's worse than Shaq. Seriously, Shaq is like two ranks above him in this list. Half the time he missed, but he could make any other shot, but not this one. In that game that he scored 100 points, he made 28 out of 32 free throws. You're like, whoa, whoa, that's really good. In fact, that he was shooting almost 85% from the free throw line in that game. That doesn't sound bad at all. It sounds awesome, and it is. But he shot every one of those shots underhanded, which is what he's doing in this picture right here. It looks like maybe he's just settling himself. No, he's getting ready to throw a granny shot. It sounds ridiculous, but here's here's what else is interesting. 51% is his career average. There was one season where the majority of the season, he shot his free throws underhand. And he wasn't great, but he was shooting more like 61%, which is a significant increase. And that was really without practicing the technique. He just tried it for a while. But he was instantly better. And his best game ever, 28 out of 32 ones that he made shooting underhand. But here's the amazing thing about this. He'd been horrendous, and then he gets better. And you think to yourself, man, if he could make that much improvement in one season without really trying, what if he practiced? What if, he, what if he continued to develop his underhand shooting technique? How much better could he have been? But after that season ended, the, his, his hundred point season, which I think was 1962, don't quote me on that, he went back to shooting overhand free throws and went back to being really, really bad at it. Why, why did he do that? That doesn't make any sense. If you're the best, why would you settle for something less than your best? In his autobiography, he addresses that question. And he basically says this. I'm not quoting directly, but I've heard this quote several times. He says, regarding underhanded free throws, I know I was wrong. I know that people before me and during my time and even after me have done a much better job shooting free throws than I did by shooting it underhand because that's better. But I just couldn't stand to look silly like a sissy. We even call it a granny shot, don't we? But he was better at it than any other time in his career. But he didn't want to look like a sissy. Basically, even though he knew that that would make him better, that he would score more points, he was unwilling to sacrifice something, in this case, a little bit of his pride, in order to be a better basketball player. He wasn't willing to suffer the cost. So this raises the bigger question. It's kind of the first question I have for us today. When we resist change due to external pressures, for him it was, what would people think? Well, they'd probably still think he was the best person ever, but to him, he didn't want to look like a sissy. When we resist change because of external pressures, even if we know that the change would be good for us, it was proven to him. It wasn't hypothetical. He showed he was better. Is it because that we don't think it's worth the costs? If we're not willing to change, even when we know it's better, is it because we don't think the change is worth the cost? To answer this question, or to to think about it, I wanted us to look at Romans chapter 12 today. So Romans chapter 12 is written by 
Paul, and it's, it's towards the end of his letter to the Romans. And I think that he does a great job of, of sort of presenting this question to us, but giving us some things to think about. So if you want to flip over to Romans chapter 12, this is from uh, the NIV. I'm going to read this passage through uh, one time, and then we're going to go back through, and we're going to dig into this almost word for word as we go, but I think it'll be pretty interesting. So here we go. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let's jump into this. Therefore, okay, let's stop. Anytime you see the word therefore or something like it in the Bible, something else is being referenced. Like most of you know that, right? So when we start this sentence with the word therefore, Paul is referring to something else that we're not looking at in that word. Something else we need to go back and find. So if you go back and look at Romans chapter 11, you will see that he is talking in Romans chapter 11 about this divide between the Jews and the Gentiles. And his basic message, we're not going to read through it, but if you want to later, you can. His basic message in Romans 11 is God came to save everybody. It's not just about the Jews. It's not just about the Gentiles to the exclusion of the Jews. He wants everyone to be saved. So when he goes on and says, therefore, in view of God's mercy... What is the mercy that he's referring to? I think if you look at Romans 11, part of that mercy is this idea that God's salvation is for all men. But it's it's bigger than that. If you go through and, and you look through Romans 1 through Romans 11, all the way up to this point, even if you wanted to cheat, and you just wanted to look at all the subject headings for every one of these chapters leading up to this, you would find pretty quickly that Paul's Paul's chapter 1 through 11 is essentially him showing what the gospel message is all about. It's him pleading the case for faith in Christ. It's a pretty long section, but it's almost like his systematic theology. It's like him saying, here's what you need to know if you really want to dive into this faith thing. So you could argue that the, that the God's mercy that Paul's referring to here, that he's there foring, is the power of the cross. Because that's pretty much what he's been talking about the entire book so far. So because of God's mercy, that's where we're at right here. Now, I want to point out what, what he's not saying here. Paul is not saying, therefore, in order to obtain God's mercy. He's saying in view of. Because the mercy has already been granted to us through Christ. We're not earning it. So everything that's about to follow is our response to his mercy, not our payment for his mercy. Let's keep going. All right. Oh, I didn't click. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. God is calling us into a relationship with him. He does not force us. When he says offer your bodies, he's, he's inviting us to do this. He's in, almost beckoning us, like, like give yourself to me. But he's not forcing us to do it. He wants to put himself in what you could argue is kind of a vulnerable position. Potential rejection coming his way. But he doesn't want to force us on it. He wants us to willingly choose to offer ourselves to him. So our role in this is to give something up. Is to make some kind of sacrifice. And broadly speaking, he wants us to sacrifice our control, or at least our perception of control, over our lives. 
Now, I love the idea of the sacrifice illustration here, but I think we can look at it the wrong way, potentially. We can look at a sacrifice as, as destructive, right? So if you were to throw something on an altar where it's burning, it would become destroyed. It would become burnt up, and eventually you would discard it. I, I don't think that's really what he's saying. I think he's talking more in the sense of a refinement, because we're a living sacrifice. He's not trying to kill us. He's trying to make us into something better through refinement. So if you're talking about refining like ore into a precious metal, what you have is something that's imperfect. And as it goes through the flame and the fire, what comes out on the other side is something purer and better. That, I think, is the idea of sacrifice that we're supposed to understand from this passage here. He doesn't want to turn us into this mindless automaton that just does things without thinking. He wants to maintain our uniqueness, maintain our gifts, and use those things for better purposes. I want to go to this next part here. Holy and pleasing. Offer your bodies as a sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Now, a lot of you know already, because you've been part of church for a long time, and I'm sure Josh has even said it, that the word holy means something specific when it's used in the Bible. And literally speaking, it means set apart. So just like in the Old Testament, if they were going to have a sacrifice of a goat or a, or a ram or, or any kind of animal, they would pull that animal, one that was special and unique, and it would be reserved for a special purpose. And they would, they would take it and they would remove it and then eventually go and sacrifice it. It was taken away from the rest in order to be used for this specific purpose. And that's what he's calling for us as well. He's saying, I, I want you to think of yourselves as being set apart, different, reserved for a special purpose. And I love the idea that he has the word pleasing in there because our obedience to the Lord is not simply because he likes things to go his way, because he likes to boss us around, but it's because he desires good things for us. We are his children. We are his creation. And he knows what the best possible life for us looks like. And that's why he wants our obedience. That's why he's pleased when we give it to him. Because he knows what's best for us, and he wants good things for us. And then he kind of summarizes that section right there, and he says, this is your true and proper worship. And depending on what Bible you're reading, you may read another phrase like, this is your spiritual act of worship, or something similar to that. But what we're talking about here is a whole different level of religiosity from some of the things that, that maybe they were doing, and maybe some of the things that even we do sometimes. We're, we're on a different level than box-checking our Christianity. Right? Now, how do you do that? Here, here's a few examples, right? Attendance, check. I was there on Sunday or whenever. Tithing, I put some money in that plate. Check, it's good. Went on a mission trip last year. Probably the last one I'll ever do, but I went on a mission trip. Got that box, checked as well. I, I'm doing the missions thing. I'm in a small group. You can check that one too. That's four. You could probably name others. Now, some of you are sitting there going, hold on, you just named great things. Yeah. Those are great things. Those are fantastic things that every one of us in this room needs to be doing to some degree. We need to be involved in attending the worship of the church. We need to be involved in giving to the, to the mission of the church. We need to be involved in participating actively in some sort of mission for the church. We need to be involved in the community of the church. Absolutely. I am not diminishing those things at all, but it's about the motivation. If you're just trying to check the boxes and you're not looking for the transformation, if it's about completion, not transformation, then you're missing the point. 
And I think that's the idea that he's trying to get to us here. Just doing that stuff isn't necessarily true and proper worship, but allowing yourself to be transformed by it, to giving yourself over sacrificially to God, that is what real worship looks like. It makes me think of uh, the book of Amos, which is kind of a rough read. It's intense, if you've ever read Amos before. But, but look at what God is saying through the prophet Amos to the, to the people at the time. He says, I, my son doesn't like this word, but it, it's appropriate here. The Lord says, I hate and I despise your religious festivals, your assemblies. They are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring a choice fellowship offering, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. These are good things. These are things that, that God himself had prescribed for them to do as worship to him. They were checking the boxes off. But he said, no, you're, miss, you're missing the point. And then he finishes that little section uh, with this one right here. He says, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. He says they were willing to do the things, but they were not willing to be sacrificed. They were not willing to, to offer themselves on the altar. And what God wanted from his people then, and what he wants from his people today, is for us to make the things that matter to him matter to us. That's what he desires from us. Next part. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Think back to Wilt Chamberlain for a second. He's a case study in conforming even when it doesn't really make any sense. Because the prevailing culture of the NBA, then as it is now for the record, is to shoot your overhand free throws. Because otherwise you look ridiculous. But it was, it was better for him, at least. He wasn't willing to break conformity. He wasn't willing to do what was hard, even if it was better for him. See, here's the thing. We need to remove, and I'm, I'm speaking to myself here. Don't feel like I'm, I've got this all figured out. But we, we've got to learn to remove the obstacles that we create for ourselves that block us from experiencing freedom in Christ. And your, your obstacle is unique to you. Some of us may share the same one, but, but yours is not necessarily the same as the person next to you. For Wilt Chamberlain, in, in that element of his life, it was, it was pride, which it often is at the core of things. But each of us has some obstacle that we have created for ourselves. Nobody's forcing these obstacles upon us. We can always say no, or we can always say, I'm going to choose to do this. But we decide in ourselves that, that we can't break conformity. And we block ourselves off from experiencing the freedom that Christ has in store for us. It stands in the way of the refining work of the Spirit. Now remember, God is calling us to offer ourselves to him. But when we turn back, because of obstacles, we're turning our backs to his beckoning. We're saying, I, I hear you, I just can't do it. I just can't. And maybe that's like one thing in your life, not everything, but there's something probably at different phases of your life that you're just like, ah, I can't quite. I can't quite, there's something in the way. Even for the huge Wilt Chamberlain, there was an obstacle too big for him to cross. Let's keep going. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is where it starts to get a little bit more interesting, or a little bit more fun, I think, because now we're, now we're looking at the reward side of things. And i got to check my time real fast here. Okay. Think about what it... Th think about who, the, who is the active party in this transformation. Who is doing the work? It doesn't say transform yourself by renewing your mind. 
It says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, now you may think that I'm like splitting grammatical hairs here, but I think there's an interesting and important point to be made. And it's that God is the transformer. Not the robot, but the one who does the transforming. God is the renewer. That's not our job. We receive that when we accept his calling for us. He does the changing. We just embrace it. I think that's pretty cool. When I was trying to finish this up last night, I was, I was tired, and my eyeballs from my contacts were really getting tired. And I actually thought, that's not a bad illustration. Because when I have to go to bed at night, in order for my eyes to function the next day, I take out my contact lenses, as many of you do, and I put them into a certain solution. And my particular solution is called Renew. Even looking at this image makes my eyes feel soothed right now. And if you have contacts, you know what I'm talking about, right? Because as the day progresses... Your eyes get dirty. I don't know what it is, the bacteria or something. They get dirty and dusty, and your contacts can dry out. And so they require renewal. Mine require it every single night. I put it in this special solution, and the next morning, I'm good to go. They are refreshed. They are renewed, and I'm ready to start the day again. They're, They're made new again, and that's fantastic. See, in the same way, guys, God promises to take us from our dried and dirtied state and make us once again ready to fulfill our design. So, what does this transformation look like? How, in fact, are we changed? If you read through chapter, uh, same chapter, 12, verses 9 through 21, there's a lot of good stuff in there. We're not going to read it, but I'm going to show you. I went through and basically picked out just like a keyword or phrase of all the different evidences of transformation that God is essentially saying, this is what the transformed life looks like. So if you are transformed, you become sincere. You turn from evil to good. You are a devoted friend. You are honoring of others. You are filled filled with spiritual fervor and zeal. You are joyful, patient, faithful, eager to share, hospitable, quick to offer blessing, empathetic, peaceful, humble, faultless, not vengeful, a champion over evil. That's a lot of cool stuff, right? Do any of those kind of make you feel guilty? (laughs) Like, man, I don't... I don't have that evidence abundantly in my life. And here's another thing that I I thought when I was reading through this list. Some of these are really hard to do, aren't they? I mean, if you read through this vengeful one, if you read the verses, like the words that he's saying in that, he doesn't just say, don't be vengeful. He tells all this stuff about like, like don't heap evil upon other people, all this kind of stuff. I mean, if you think about that, when you are wronged by somebody, I mean like stabbed in the back, wrong. It is not your natural inclination to pray blessings upon them. Nobody does that. Come on. That's what he's calling us to do. And some of these other characteristics, some of them may be natural to you because we all have positive things about ourselves. But when I look through this list, I'm thinking, man, I fall short on so many of these things. But he's saying that, that as you become transformed, these are the characteristics that become true of who you are. Now, again, some of this looks unnatural to us. But think about this. God is trying to restore us to a a proper state of being. In a sense, he's trying to say, the way you're living is unnatural. Let me restore you to a natural way. Because these are characteristics of God. He's trying to make us into his, into his image. So as we adopt more and more of these things, as we're transformed, we actually become more and more as the way that we were naturally designed to be. Let's finish this verse up here. 
as you are renewed, you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Is Paul really saying <laughs> that as this happens to us, that we can, we can gain a greater understanding of the mind of God? Yeah, I, I kind of think he is. I do. I mean, I think that's what it says. You can, you'll be able to test and approve God's will. I think another way you could say that is you will have greater understanding, greater discernment about God's will for your life and for the lives of others. Think about this. Do you know anyone in your life that you would consider to be exceptionally wise, exceptionally discerning, particularly in spiritual matters? It could be your, your parents. It could be a grandparent. It could be an elder of the church or somebody else that, that you have in a position of spiritual authority in your life. You probably have someone you can name, maybe several. Are they just better than you? I don't, I don't think so. They might be. I don't think they are, though. Isn't it more likely and, and more logical, given what we're reading here, that as they have spent time submitting themselves to God's transforming power, it has caused them to be refined into the person they are today, full of wisdom, full of discernment. That can be each of us if we're willing to undergo this process. We can gain that wisdom and that discernment because God grants it to us. That's pretty cool. As we're made more into his likeness, he opens our minds to the mysteries of his will. Here's the problem, though. When we resist God's transformation, we end up missing out on the best version of ourselves. We miss out on here and now rewards, like some of the things we read about a moment ago. But, but you know, if, if we go all the way with this, then we can actually risk missing out on the eternal reward. Now, earlier in the beginning of this lesson, I asked a question that if we, if we don't think the end product is worth the cost, or the question was, if we resist change, does it mean that we, we don't think the end product is really worth the cost? And for the last several minutes, we've been looking at the ways that God places transform, that God values transformation and renewal. So I want to ask you a similar question now. Do you think that being transformed and renewed is important enough for you to willingly surrender yourself to God? If your answer is no, that you don't think it's important enough, just where you are in your faith right now, I want to ask that you at least consider what it is that you are unwilling to sacrifice or place on the altar. For Walt, for Walt Chamberlain, it was looking sissy. He didn't want to do that. That was too much. For you, it may be something deeper, something more. I cannot answer that question for you. But if you look internally, you might be able to find the answer of what am I unwilling to sacrifice. If your answer is yes, and you've already chosen to follow, to follow Christ, I want to ask you to, to help someone else along their path. We talk a lot about the discipleship path and how we want to be multiplying and re reproducing. That's an individual thing and not just a church-wide thing. If you are a follower of Christ, you have a responsibility to disciple somebody in some way. So look for someone you can help. If, if you want to answer yes, but you have not yet chosen to follow Christ, but you're feeling drawn to him, I encourage you to open yourself up to God's transformational power. And he has a promise for you, all of us, and it's that we will not be the same, but we will be more like Jesus. I want to end with, uh, with the, another basketball player. This guy is basically the anti-Wilt Chamberlain. He's also a Hall of Famer. He also played in the same era. And he was, he was notable for the thing, he was famous for the thing that Wilt was infamous for. 
And it's this guy right here, Rick Barry. Some of you know who that is. Rick Barry was a fantastic basketball player all around, but he was really good at free throw shooting. He shot a career average of 89.3%. I think he's in, I think he's the top six free throw shooter of all time. And he shot every single shot underhanded. And argued from that point on that that was the best way to do it. There have been others that have shot slightly better than him, meaning like less than 1% better than him. But his argument was that anybody that's not good at this, if you will adopt this technique, it will make you better. Here's the thing. He was so focused on being the best basketball player that he could possibly be that when he realized that underhand shooting was better for him than overhand shooting, even though he initially thought that it did look sissy, but when he realized that it was better, he was all in. Because there was nothing that was going to stand in his way of being the best possible basketball player that he could be. So even though Wilt Chamberlain could dominate the basketball court like nobody else in his era, he cannot claim to have played to the very best of his ability. Because there was one thing that he could have done that he knew he could do to be better and didn't. But Rick Barry can say that he tried as very hard as he could. Guys, my hope for us today, as we're concluding here, is that we recognize the value of God's transforming work. And instead of resisting what we know to be good for us, we throw ourselves upon the altar of worship and embrace a little underhand faith.